If you have your Bibles, you may open them. However you choose to get your Bible, whether that's electronic or uh, the old book and paper, uh, or if you don't have one, you can grab the book in front of you. The Bible should be there in the pew. If you don't have a Bible at home, we want you to take that one. That is our gift to you. Uh, we want you to have that, read it, come back, keep asking questions. It helps. But we're going to turn to the Gospel according to John. John chapter 20. Verses 1 through 18, we are reading with our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world today and reading the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. And because it is the Gospel, I want to invite everyone to stand in reverence to the Gospel and let us hear the word of the Lord, the good news according to John, chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put Him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put Him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that He had said these things to her. This is the Word of God for the people of God. And our response is, thanks be to God. You may be seated. Our passage today has quite a cast of characters. We have John who writes himself into the story as the one Jesus loved, the disciple Jesus loved. We have Peter, we have Mary, and there's a different ways that they react. I mean, it's not quite the cast of characters of the story that will come up later this week. <laughs> a couple of you are praying that some of them will be resurrected. That's nowhere near as important as what we're doing today. But the characters help us 
to find our way into the gospel story this morning, into the Easter narrative. And so I'm going to encourage you to find who do you fit with? Is it John? Is it Peter? Is it Mary? Where where are you in the story? But first, we have to kind of set the stage because this is a beautiful, beautiful thing that we have. And so we're going to go through the gospel of John pretty quickly. I was uh, Many of you remember our four-year journey earlier uh, through the gospel of John. I promise it's not going to be that way. Alicia told me my entire high school career was in the Gospel of John on Sundays. We won't do that. Trust me. But we need to set the stage because John has done something beautiful. And right at the very end of his Gospel, he tells us the purpose of his writing. And the purpose of his writing is that you, the reader, you, me, today, the ones who are hearing his Gospel, that we may become, uh, that we may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing or trusting in Him, or trusting that this is true of Him, that you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of John writing the gospel. So you can put yourself in there. We, let's say this together, and I want you to take out you and put, say, I, because I want this to be very personal to you. So John's purpose is what? That I may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, I may have life in his name. This is the purpose of John's gospel. And so as we go through this today, the setting of this up, I want you to wrestle with this question. Will today be the day when the purpose of John's gospel is fulfilled in your life? In you? So let's set the table, shall we? John created a beautiful work for you here. I mean, it is masterful in the telling. Four years was not nearly enough for us to catch all the flavor and the nuance of John's beautiful gospel. There is a beautiful symmetry laid within the gospel. It begins right at the beginning. John's gospel begins with the words, In the beginning. Which to any good Jew or any person who's been around church for a long time will remind you of the very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of creation, that Genesis says in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. But John starts there. He wants us to know this is going to be all about life. We're starting a week here that something different is going to take place. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he said, that Word put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood, moved on earth as Jesus, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son. That's the first day. But he weaves these signs. There are seven in total. And it kind of takes us in that pattern. Helps us to see that this thing that God is doing, this good news, affects every aspect of our lives. From Sunday to Sunday again, it begins a beautiful, beautiful thing. The signs that we will see these first six flow out of the Jewish life of Jesus' era. So John was somebody who understood his own culture and decided when I'm telling this gospel, I want to beautifully, creatively, artistically move in so that my folks can really grab hold of this. So let's take a look at just a couple of them, okay? The first sign, and John is very blatant. He points out that this was Jesus' first sign, was the water into wine. You remember the story, right? Jesus and his disciples uh, were at a wedding, which was an all-city event at that time, or probably all-village event. And it was a week-long or longer celebration. And a horrible thing happened, something that would be talked about for decades, because that's what small towns do. 
When something goes wrong, we talk about it for decades, don't we? They ran out of wine. This was a scandal. And so Mary, not wanting them to be uh, the talk of the town for the next decade, goes to Jesus and tells Him. And He instructs the people to fill up the ceremonial jars that are used for washing. The ceremonial jars that are used for washing bodies. Not the you want your wine to come from, right? But, He says, do this. And then He says, take it to the wine taster. And they're obedient. They do that and they take it to Him. And the wine taster tastes the water that has now become wine and says, this is the best wine. Most people serve the best at the beginning and then as people get more and more under the influence of wine, they won't remember when you bring out the bad stuff. But you have brought the saved the best for last. This really ties into Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, where Isaiah writes of the future King, the future Messiah. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines. So this sign confirms that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the one who is bringing God's generous kingdom and feast. But there's a caveat. If you've forgotten, it's not just for you. It's for everyone. And this is the importance of the message. Sign number two, Jesus heals a sick boy in chapter uh, chapter four. We call it the healing of the official sons. But before we get there, we have to look at what was going on. What were the claims Jesus made? What was going on? And Jesus claims to fulfill three of the most vital Jewish institutions. That is the temple, the rabbinic teaching, and the mikvah, or the ceremonial washing. That thing that you did in order to know you had been made ritually pure and can go to the worship service in the temple. In the temple, the Jews would understand the temple as the place where heaven and earth meet. So it was very, very holy. It was something you went in, God's presence was there, and so you made sure by washing and other things that you were pure enough to go into this place. And Jesus goes in and creates an uproar. He begins to drive people out. And they say, why are you doing this in the temple, the place where heaven and earth meet? And Jesus says, tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. In other words, he was saying, my body on the cross is where heaven and earth will fully meet and nothing will ever tear it asunder again. He makes a bold claim. The rabbinic teaching, chapter 3, we see Nicodemus, who is a rabbi. And Nicodemus probably thinks he's just going to chill with another rabbi and we're going to throw it down Old Testament style and we're going to work on these teachings. And we're just going to do this. It's going to be fun. Just all night together. Talking about Scripture. And this is where Jesus says that what the Jewish people, in fact, what the world doesn't need is a new teacher. What they need are new hearts and new life. And this is where He declares they must be born again. It's also where that famous passage is, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him would have life everlasting, life that is so good it starts now and nothing can ever stop it. He says, there's something else. He ties into this. And then the mikvah, the ceremonial washing, He meets with a woman at a well, at a sacred well, Jacob's well, and He meets there with her and He tells her in in, in very lengthy passage as he talks with her, with her, that it's the inside that needs washing, not the outside. 
And He says, if you will believe in Me, there's John's theme again, you will have living water bubbling up within you. And it will cleanse you all the way out. And then you will worship in spirit and in truth with all that you are. He just pulls this along. Do you see how John is just beautifully weaving this, this beautiful tapestry for us? And the sign of the healing of this official son validates all those things that Jesus has claimed about the temple, about the teaching, and about the ceremonial washing. It just is meant to pull us along so that we can see, ah, yes, wow, well, I don't know about this, but wow, look at what he's doing here. Remember, miracles are meant to instruct us, not impress us. And so they, they point back and they say, oh, he's claimed all. Yes, look at what he's done. There must be something different about this Jesus. But he goes on. We're not going to have time to do all of this. But signs 3, 4, 5, and 6 weave in the major Jewish festivals. So it looks at all of them. It starts with the Sabbath. And Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And He proclaims that uh, by the pool of Bethsaida. And He claims that my Father is working, so I am working. That starts getting under the religious leaders' nerves. They're not sure about this. Uh, later, he takes on Passover. He declares, I am the bread of life. And he feeds 5,000 men along with women and children with just five loaves and two fishes. Sukkot, which is one we're not too familiar with, but it is the Feast of Tabernacles where they, where they remember the wilderness wanderings and how God provided water from a rock and He provided His presence as a pillar of fire, light, through the, this long journey. And in the midst of them remembering the water, Jesus cries out in the worship service, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to Me. And when they get to the part where they're talking about the light, where they celebrate the law being given on Mount Sinai, He says, I am the light of the world. And in the midst of that, He heals a blind man. He said, we need to see what God is going to do. If we want to see that He is living water and He is light, we need our eyes healed. He moves on. And then finally, Hanukkah which celebrates the rededication of the temple after foreign invaders have been pushed out, thrown down, conquered. If you want to read that, you'll have to find a Catholic Bible. It's in 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabees. You can read it. It's pretty bloody. But they would celebrate this rededication of the temple. And on this one, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He knows that to be near Jerusalem means His end, but He says, this is so important that they understand that My kingdom is not about driving someone else out. It is about bringing life between peoples that might consider themselves enemies. He goes and He heals His friend who has been dead for four days. He chooses to die for His friend, which points us ahead. Now we have to remember, this is how many, how many signs have we had so far? Good, you're tracking with me. This side needs to wake up. I didn't hear any sixes over here. Six, okay. Six, six, okay, we're good. All right, we've got, we've got the, we're at six signs. I want to pause for a moment to remember what is the purpose of John's Gospel, of his weaving all this beautiful tapestry uh, artistically for us today. Say it with I instead of you. Ready? Let's read it together. That I may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, I may have life in His name. Because we have to get to this one. And this is the seventh sign. And it is why we are here today. It is the sign that He has risen. That He died and He has risen. That is the seventh and most vital sign. 
But I need us to look. Because John again weaves a beautiful tapestry. He moves on. It's almost like there's a break there. And he moves away from describing life in the Jewish uh, nation, the, the life and rhythm of Judaism, and he moves into the kingdom life. He begins to talk about what the kingdom of God is like. And he does it by his teaching. He does it by his actions. So the first thing he does to describe the kingdom life is that he washes his disciples' feet. What no rabbi in their right mind would do, Jesus does. He takes the place of a servant and does the job that the lowest of the low servant. If you had servants, the one that was newest, the one that you hated the most, that was the one who did the washing of feet when people came in. And Jesus took that position. And He tells them that this is the way of the kingdom and that they must love others at this level. This is the beginning of His teaching. Then, He tells them that it is good that He will go away. Because He will send the Spirit that will enable them to remember His teachings and live the way He has called them to live. If they will only remain in Him. He talks about vine and branches. Think about vine and branches. Does a branch on a vine have to think and struggle to hold on? Or is it pretty natural? So if the Spirit comes and we are the branches and He is the vine, He says, when My kingdom comes, you will be like a branch on the vine. And it will just feel natural to hold on and remain in Me. He prays in John 17 that we might be as unified with God as He and the Father are. Think about that for a moment. That life in the kingdom means that you and I can live as unified with God as Jesus and the Father are. That should be good news. That should begin to stir up something, a longing within your very heart. That I could be that connected to God. And Jesus prayed for that. That was something He wanted more than anything. He tells them then that in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome, literally means gained victory over the world. He then shows them what kingdom victory looks like. Are you ready to hear about kingdom victory? What it looks like? Kingdom victory begins, He lets them arrest Him. Now this is very strange. There's this passage, the way Jesus describes it is different than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. There's this thing, the armies come, or the, the, the people come to arrest Jesus, and they say, who is Jesus? And He says, I am. And John says, they fall back. John wants to draw our attention and not get distracted from the, the teaching that they are arresting Him, but Jesus, this is kingdom victory. This is what it looks like. It looks like laying down power. It looks like washing the feet of anyone who Jesus puts in your path. It looks like staying connected to Him. It looks like being filled with the Spirit. And yes, if it means this, to be arrested. And He lets them go. But we get to see just this little spark of, remember, this is the kingdom victory. This is what it looks like. Laying down of power. Jesus is on trial and He says to Pilate, My kingdom is for this world, but it's not from this world. In other words, my value system is entirely different. We don't play by the rules of power grabbing, of putting others in their place and making sure that we are on top. If we, if we were to do that, he, was, he said, my disciples would be fighting right now because you have taken over their leader. 
But my kingdom is for the world, but it's not from it. And then he lets them crucify him. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you get a picture of power, and it looks like power murders Jesus and then is turned on its head by the good news. In John, John is very clear because this is a teaching that Jesus let himself be crucified because this is the kingdom way. Rather than create another victim, we absorb all that they are throwing at us out of love for the world so that they could have life. And while he's on the cross, he's still caring for others. He sees his mom, and she, he knows that she might have some struggles. So he says to one of his disciples, Disciple, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. So that they could be cared for. And the Scripture says he cared for her from that day. How many of us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of dying, would take a moment to care for somebody else? Jesus does because His kingdom is different. And then they buried Him. All of this is meant to show you what the kingdom victory looks like. Aren't you blessed this morning? But it's not there. But it reminds me of John Perkins. John Perkins is a, is a Christian and, and has been a part of, of uh, activism and looking at social justice and looking at the, at the, uh, the watch with Martin Luther King. And he declares, and I believe this, this statement has stuck with me and is so foundational. He says, love is the final fight. Think about it. What takes more power? To get revenge on someone who has done something to you? Or to, in that moment... Choose to love and not retaliate. What takes more self-control? What takes more will? What takes more power? And I believe John would say, what takes the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us? Love is the final fight, the final wrestling to choose to love someone even if they do not seek our best interest. It reminds me of a parable of monks. And these monks were in their monastery and uh, the, uh, an army was coming and they knew this was not going to be good. They were hostile to faith. And so they decided to spend their last hours kneeling before the cross. And so they were kneeling before the cross in silence, saying their prayers. And they heard the army slowly marching up the mountain. And they got there and they came in. And there was a lot of commotion, a lot of clamoring. And they knew the soldiers were coming in. They knew they were gathered all around them. They began to bark out orders to the monks. And the monks stayed on their knees, just facing the cross, looking at what their Lord had done and they were there and they were silent and finally one of the soldiers must have been the guy in charge said to them out loud to the one that he was closest to he said don't you know I have the power to kill you and the monk keeping his eyes fixed on Jesus said don't you know I have the power to let you that is true kingdom power That is love that will change the world for Christ. And that is hard for us to do. So why is the seventh sign so important? Why is resurrection so important? Because you cannot love the way Jesus loved if you are afraid of death. It's just that simple. You cannot love the way Jesus calls us to love in the kingdom if we are afraid of death. But my friends, He is risen. That's your cue. My friends, He is risen. 
The resurrection of Jesus triumph over death and it means we no longer have to fear. I want you to hear that. That the seventh sign assures us that we have nothing to fear because the greatest weapon, death, has been disarmed. Amen. The seventh sign assures us we have nothing to fear because we can be connected to Jesus like a branch on a vine, effortlessly, naturally. Amen. The seventh sign assures us we have nothing to fear because Jesus' prayer for unity with God has been answered. The seventh sign assures us we have nothing to fear because Jesus has overcome the world, not by force, but by love alone. The seventh sign assures us we have nothing to fear because we know that God so loved the world that He gave and He gave and He continues to give His love to us each and every day. The seventh sign assures us that we have nothing to fear because when all we have is five loaves and two fish, with Him we have a feast for thousands. The seventh sign assures us we we have nothing to fear because when our life, when your life has become a desert with the risen Jesus, we have living water all the time. The seventh sign assures us we have nothing to fear because if we get lost, the good shepherd will come and find us. Amen. The seventh sign assures us we have nothing to fear because when all is dark around us, we have the risen light of the world. The seventh sign assures us we have nothing to fear because when sin is in need of cleansing, we have the one who is living water that pulls up at the lowest parts of our soul and cleanses every stain. Amen. Amen. The seventh sign assures us we have nothing to fear because if following Jesus leads to our death, we know that He is the one who can lead us into resurrection and new life. Do you believe that this morning? That's what the seventh sign is all about. That is what Easter is all about. To remember that we have nothing to fear for He has conquered death with His love. And that love comes right down to you this morning. Remember the purpose. Let's read it again. That I may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have, I may have life in His name. So where are you in the story? Where have you found yourself? Are you Mary Magdalene at the very beginning? You, you've heard about Jesus and you've kind of moved towards some places where you thought He might be. Only to get scared because church people are weird. Or somebody said something that you don't understand and it just seems crazy to be there and, and you just, it got uncomfortable and so you ran to tell somebody else about it. Is that you? Are you Mary Magdalene early in our story? Are you, are you Peter? Do you run full in? Have you been in the cave? Have you been there with your, your rational mind and you're, you're kind of working through this and you're looking at, at the, the grave clothes and you've examined everything and you've tried to look at Scripture, but it still doesn't quite make sense because you're still in a grave and it still doesn't quite compute for you. Is that you today? Maybe you've been a part of church for a long time and you can still say, I'm not so sure about the resurrection of Jesus. And I certainly have struggles loving the way that Jesus called me to love. That's okay. Maybe you're John. Maybe you've, you've gone kind of back and forth. You were fast and you, maybe you rushed ahead of some of your friends, and, but you're just kind of peeking in. 
You're kind of on the margins. You're just kind of looking in to see what this whole thing is all about. Maybe you, you're kind of seeing it. And maybe some of you took the next step that John does and you kind of go in and you've been kind of milling about cross-community church for a while trying to figure out this Jesus thing. And I don't know, maybe learn the language and this Christian ease that they spent, that they, that they talk and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And you're just wondering, but you have yet to meet the risen Jesus. Where are you today? I want you to know that He is alive. I want you to know that trusting in Him is as simple as declaring with your mouth, I believe. I'm going to trust and to take the next step because John wants us to know that we are all on this journey. And Jesus longs to meet you. And just like Jesus said to Mary, and her name was what finally made things made sense, what finally brought everything together, He wants to be there in front of you and say, Jackson, and Julie, and Rick, and Scott, and Rita, and Bob, and Matt, and Aiden. Jesus is there in front of you. And when He calls your name, you will know that He is alive. Because when He calls your name, you will know He knows your situation. He knows where you've been. He knows the journey you've been on. He's been with you all the way. And He will give you and help you in whatever way He needs to so that you can no longer fear and can love as He has called everyone in His kingdom to love. If you don't believe me, let's go back to John 3.16, the second part of it. Jesus, this is Jesus speaking, declares, whoever, that means you. Go like this for a second. Everybody, come on. It's not to check the time. Go like this. Got a pulse? That's whoever. That means you. Have a pulse, you're included in Whoever. Whoever believes, that means trust in, trust in me, trust in Jesus, shall have everlasting life. I know that for so long, even the churches use that as just fire insurance to get out of hell card. But what it means is the quality of life, because Jesus is present with you here and now. Your quality of life becomes so strong. The quality of love becomes so strong that nothing can take it from you, even if this mortal body dies. It's the good news. It's the beauty of the seventh sign. And John has written all of this. And I have preached to you this morning all of this so that you might come to believe that He is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, you would have this quality of life and love forever. Would you bow your heads? In a minute, I'm going to close this in prayer. But I want to take this opportunity to say, has anything that I have said today spoken to you to say, Jeff, I I want that quality of life. And there's something about the way you talked about Jesus today that leads me to believe that He could give me that quality of life. 
And I've been on a journey and it's been tough. And I've danced around this whole church thing. Today I just want to simply say, I believe. I trust that He's the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God. I trust that He can give me this quality of life. And I want it. And so with all heads bowed and eyes closed, because I don't want to embarrass anyone, Jesus never embarrassed anyone, I want you to raise your hand if you're saying, I want to believe today. I want to believe today. Just keep your hands raised. I want that love in my life. I want that to happen for me. Keep your hands raised. Keep your hands raised. I want that life. I need that love. I want that. You may put your hands down. Lord Jesus, you saw those who raised their hand and you know everyone else who didn't. I pray today that they would know that the seventh sign is true. That you are alive and you offer everything you taught about the kingdom to us. Help us to be a people, a church, captivated by your kingdom vision. And help us, Lord. Help us. Help us to bless others. Help us to wash feet if necessary. Help us to hold on to love in the midst of persecution. In the midst of suffering, help us to look like you in our world, for only that will change everything. Thank you, Jesus, for teaching us. Thank you for loving us. May those who have raised their hand know right now that you are with them and the quality of their life and love will begin to change. May it be evident in their families. May it be evident in their marriages. May it be evident in their workplaces. May it be evident in their schools. May they just notice that something is different because Jesus has moved into their neighborhood. Thank you. And we praise you. We ask all of this in your great name. And everyone said, Amen. And I want you to receive the final blessing. And now, may you all know how deep the Father's love is for you. May you trust that the Son whom He raised from the dead will lead you into more and more life and deeper and deeper love. May you realize you have nothing to fear. And may you go out a blessing to your world, showing the love that only Jesus can give. And I pray this in the name of the Father who loves us. In the name of the Son who is with us always. And in the name of the Spirit, 
who is in us, empowering us to live the kingdom life as we trust in Jesus' name. God bless you. Happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. God bless you as you go. Go in peace. Amen.